Hello, uh, this is Bill Goldstein. Welcome to Macmillan's Unknown History Podcast. I will be the host today for a conversation with Rashid Newson, author of My Government Means to Kill Me, and Jack Lowry, author of It Was Vulgar and It Was Beautiful. So we're going to be talking today about AIDS, the history of AIDS, AIDS activism. I'm sure we will also talk about contemporary subjects like monkeypox and COVID, just to keep everything uh, contemporary as well as historical. And uh, as I said, my name is Bill Goldstein. I do a book segment on Sunday mornings on Weekend Today in New York on NBC. And I wrote a book that Holt, part of Macmillan, published five years ago called The World Broken Two, which is a literary history of the year 1922. I'm now working on a biography of Larry Kramer, which uh, makes me at least a likely candidate to conduct this conversation with Jack and Rashid. So, uh, Jack, uh, first, uh, since your book is nonfiction, I want you to tell me a little bit about what it is, just so that we're setting the scene of what was happening in New York in the 1980s and across the country. And then we'll talk to Rashid about how he takes some of those events and reinvents them. Definitely. So I wrote a book about Grand Fury, which was a collective of 10 graphic designers and artists who joined together in 1988 to create propaganda, graphic posters, and um, other sorts of installations, billboards, that sort of thing um, that helped ACT UP achieve its mission of um, ending the AIDS crisis, which is obviously still ongoing, um, but was very much diminished by, you know, ACTUP's efforts. Um, so uh, let's go back a little bit uh, to talk about what ACT UP is, and then I want to ask Rashid to talk about uh, ACT UP because he uh, takes it as a starting point uh, or one of the starting points for his novel. So tell me a little bit about ACT UP and how it began. And Definitely. What- I think... It- when you talk about ACT UP, I think it's really useful to think about the context in which ACT UP was born in 1987. Um, at the time, the president had said the word AIDS twice in public and had not given any sort of major public address about it. Uh, the number of Americans who had died of AIDS was about to surpass the number of Americans that had died in the Vietnam War. Um, the number of AIDS deaths in this country was doubling or tripling almost every year. There were no medications on the horizon that would stem the um, that would stem the HIV virus and the main idea that was being promoted at the time of how to combat the AIDS crisis was a quarantine of HIV positive people and this was not a kind of fringe theory this was a very this was happening in mainstream politics California actually voted twice on bills in 1986 and 1988 again that would quarantine all people who are living with HIV. And if you think about what a what an HIV quarantine means, it's very, very different than, you know, quarantining somebody for COVID. Um, HIV was and still is incurable. So um, saying that you want to quarantine somebody for being HIV positive is essentially giving them a life sentence for their HIV status. Um, and so in the midst of this, a group formed in New York in March of 1987 called ACT UP. Um, and they formed with the idea that this group of people who were being disproportionately affected by AIDS. Um, It was mostly gay men, um, but also um, intravenous drug users and hemophiliacs were also being affected by AIDS as well. Um, And they formed in 1987 to lobby the government into action. Um, And ACT UP was extremely successful at this. Um, There are many ways of kind of gauging the success of ACT UP, um, but I think that one of the most clear ways um, of gauging their success is looking at the amount of federal aid spending um, and what that looked like before ACT UP and what that looked like after ACT UP became a very dominant part of American life. If you look at the trajectory, um, I mean, after ACT UP forms in 1987, it goes, the funding goes straight up. And Anthony Fauci actually told, um, you know, Anthony Fauci was then as he is now the head of the NIH and he told ACT UP members, um, you know, the more you're demonstrating, the more money I'm going to get to work with. Um, and that funding um, for federal AIDS research eventually led to the medications that we have today that make HIV a long-term manageable condition. Um, so that's a little bit about what ACT UP accomplished, but um, you know, they also won huge civil rights battles for um, 
you know, by expanding the CDC's definition of people who could, um, who are qualified for an AIDS diagnosis, um, expediting the drug approval process, uh, winning needle exchange in cities like New York. Um, I mean, they really had a very tangible impact on almost every facet of the epidemic. So I, I, I think one thing I, I want to just put in there is ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And uh, one of the interesting things that as I've been working on this biography of Larry Kramer, he certainly was the catalyst. He liked to be called the founder of ACT UP. Um, he was in many ways a speech he gave in March of 1987, gave rise to it. But that uh, one of the ways in which the people in ACT UP thought of it or think of it is not so much as an organization, which I think is a, a word that it's easy to use. Obviously, it, it was a group of organized or disorganized people, uh, but that it was also uh, more than an organization, a movement, and that um, what happened in New York began to uh, radiate out to many chapters elsewhere, uh, including abroad. And so uh, I've, I've been thinking of it as a movement rather than an organization. And it, it helps me get away a little bit from the idea of having to decide whether Larry was the founder of an organization. But I think that's just something to think about as we now go to Rashid to tell us how he uses ACT UP as, as I said earlier, a starting point or one of the starting points for his novel, because you look at it uh, not only from a different point of view from, you know, art and activism, but also from uh, a fantastical fictional point of view that, that may get closer to the truth, uh, you know, rather than the myth. But uh, that's, that's a question. Yes. I mean, in My Government Means to Kill Me, what I wanted to do was tell the story of a gay black young man who comes to New York in the middle of this crisis and figures out a way to respond. And what I wanted was a character who seemed like an unlikely candidate to be getting involved in act, as an activist. What I love about ACT UP and most social movements is, yes, they're people who um, sort of have that protest spirit. They, they might have been involved in several movements. They are <coughs> advocates to their soul. But I'm interested in the people who find themselves drawn into it, even though that isn't something you might have imagined they would be doing three or four years from now. Because I think that's most of us, or it certainly can be most of us, if we're open to it. Um, I think sometimes when you look at ACT UP or people who, who lead mo movements, it's easy to sort of deify them to the point of they're not human. You know, that's something extraordinary they're doing. And the truth is we could all be doing that. We could all be doing something like that. Um, in my book, I got a lot more leeway because I'm fictionalizing Larry Kramer or Bayard Rustin. <coughs> or Dorothy Cotton, but I, what I was trying to do is get to look at these people before they became icons, before everybody sort of had this awe around them. And I'd wondered in your books, I mean, because they are, they're nonfiction, how do you get past or tear past the myth that sort of grows up around these movements and these people? Jack, do you want to? I feel like you should start with this one, Bill, because Larry <laughs> is a figure, like I, you know, I mean, the people that I wrote about in Grand Fury, some of them are well-known artists, but they aren't people who have, like, a myth, you know, surrounding them in the way that someone like Larry Kramer does. Well, uh, I think I had some practice in The World Broken 2 writing about Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forster, and D.H. Lawrence. And to get around that, uh, I that, that idea that we already know who they are or we know who they became— I wrote about a specific time in their lives. It was largely about what they were all doing in the year 1922, which was the year Virginia Woolf turned 40 and she first read Proust. And she then began the story, Mrs. Dalloway and Bond Street, that gives rise years later to the published novel, Mrs. Dalloway. And so by looking at each of them in a specific time, Eliot had not yet published The Wasteland Arts, published at the end of 1922. I tried to look as much through an immediate contemporary lens, through diaries, letters, or what other people in their diaries and letters had said about these people, so that you weren't 
looking back in a retrospective way about the inevitability either of Virginia Woolf's suicide or the uh, her genius or of Eliot's fame or of uh, the greatness of the pa- a Passage to India, which is a novel that Forster at that point had been struggling with for eight years. It wasn't published till 1924. So how were people looking at them in that moment and how are they thinking about their own work and how are they understanding what they were doing or what they were failing to do because they had literary goals that each of them had literary goals that they weren't meeting. And I don't think we're used to thinking of them that way, obviously, from their fame. And so with Larry and and with AIDS, I mean, it's it's one of the things in Jack's book and in Rashid's book that is so uh, impressive is to see what was happening at that exact moment and, and to see what AIDS activists, what uh, Bayard Rustin in in your novel, what the main characters in your novel are responding to is specific to what's happening in 1985, 1986, 1987, so that those people are lost, literally, I suppose, in the middle of the epidemic. They don't know what drugs there will be. They don't know what eventual response there might be from the government, even to their protests or their activities, because Uh, by 1987, it's over five years into the epidemic and nothing has worked really to get anybody's attention. So um, one of the things I've tried to focus on is the limits of their knowledge. And so a lot of what Larry and other people are doing may be misguided in terms of tactics or strategy or a failure to understand what's happening. But I think that is part of their struggle is that they don't know enough about the medical information. Even the medical information they have might be tentative or it might be wrong. And so it's important to put reactions to what is known, even the difference between March, say, and uh, December of 1987. Um, And so, so that's how I've tried to focus it as much on what is being said by them in the moment. And uh, one of the interesting things about Larry's papers, Larry Kramer's papers are at the Beinecke Library, which is at Yale, is that partly because it's a newer collection, I suppose, than Virginia Woolf's or D.H. Lawrence's papers there or elsewhere, uh, it's not as highly processed. And so Larry's correspondence and clippings and uh, things he cut out of magazines like advertisements that have nothing to do with uh, HIV or AIDS um, are all there together. And so you can often see what he's responding to, oh, there was this article in the New York Times, or there was this hideous editorial in the New York Daily News, or someone on the West Coast said this, and uh, or this is what they believed that Fauci and uh, the NIH were failing to do on this day. Uh, it's very important to see all that. So uh, I think both of you give that great sense of the unanticipated future and the fear that and what that what that makes people do i also my process for dealing with like you know bayard rustin or dorothy cotton or or larry kramer was at first to sort of immerse myself in a lot of the oral histories and the videos um you know making a history podcast was very helpful for this just to and hear and, and and listen to it while i was folding the laundry and doing the dishes I mean, and, and not try to study it, study it, but just get a sense of it. And then I felt like to sort of knock these people back to human form, I had to give Trey some insight that maybe I could argue Trey's the only one who saw this in Larry. <laughs> this may not be the Larry you remember, or this may not be, you know, Rustin as you knew him, but Trey had this special view. And I tried to find something that just reminded everybody that they were human outside of the character. So when it came to like Mr. Rustin, who's incredibly dignified, understandably, classy guy, great dresser, um, incredible civil rights leader. I wanted to remind everybody, yes, you know he's a gay black man. Had you thought to consider that he had sexual desires and needs and he did something to satisfy them? Um, I felt a little justified about this because when I'm researching him, he had been picked up for solicitation in Pasadena in 1953, and he was found in a car with two other guys. 
And I thought, good for you. Um, and it's, it's just reminding people like, oh yeah, that's right. It's not just a political position to be homosexual. It's, it's, it's shaping your life. And a lot of our desires were criminalized or driven underground. So you could have someone like Bayard Rustin be arrested for, you know, fooling around in a parked car because that's the era. And so I put him in a gay bathhouse so he could sort of meet my character and he could still be the mentor, but you'd also be saying the man who every once in a while would say, excuse me, I'm going to go score with Larry. Um, you know, the, the myth around Larry is that you know, he's just this ferocious, you know, he's just, he's, he's able to sort of just go in there and yell down an army, which we needed. And it was wonderful. And I just kept thinking, cause I'd, I'd hear him in conversations and I thought, you know, he doesn't sound like a raving lunatic at all. He seems, he seems pers- like, like, what are you talking about? He just seems like somebody discussing his life over dinner. And I thought, well, then what would it be like to be called upon to have to bring the Hulk into the situation, into the room? Um, what, is that, what does that do to you to have to meet that demand? And also at one point in the book, I had Larry say to my character that he's, you know, sort of naturally likable implying that Larry himself is not. And I wondered, I, I wondered for every leader, I think there has to be a moment in your soul when you go, I know it needs to be done and I'm not sure I'm the person for the job. Um, you know, the fact that Larry might be able to intimidate outsiders is one thing, not being able to necessarily uh, get along with all of the people on your team is another. And so I just wanted to introduce these people as people first, that they don't know that they're going to become Larry Kramer, all caps. Um, I think Larry, I mean, from my experience of him and also then my, my uh, experience of reading, you know, his papers and other people's papers about him. And I think he was anxious to be liked. I think that was a, a lifelong, uh, feeling and he want he wanted to be liked and um i think he spent a lot of energy wanting to be liked but also was not shy i guess about being unlikable uh, so i that's a paradox in in many ways i and i'm i'm not sure i've made sense of it but uh, he was very hurt i think too when he was not liked and i think uh understood a certain amount about performance i mean which i think is is clear in uh in your book jack and also in your book um rashid that a certain amount of activism is pushing yourself to perform i mean and that it it brings out something in you but it's also something layered on top of you that that um pushes you like any actor uh, would uh, to 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 perform and so Larry I think saw a lot of his activism as performance he came from a show business background and uh, I think came by that honestly and I, I often come back to the idea one time he was on Nightline and with with Tony Fauci and they weren't in the same studio, but, and he was lambasting Tony Fauci. And, and this was at a, at a point when they were somewhat friends. And then I think probably, I don't know exactly what he said, calling him a mass murderer. I mean, that, that kind of thing as, as he often did. And then after it was over calling Dr. Fauci and saying, Oh, wasn't that great. And he, you, you, you called me and mass murderer on national television what are you talking about and he said oh you know it's it's all for the cause or you know something like that i mean whatever he said i mean and um uh and so i think there was a certain amount of that and uh you you bring that out i mean that he pulls it together to become a lie and i think you're you're describing that in in one scene um yeah and i'm i'm sympathetic towards it cuz i think in a lot of times to do the right thing you've got to decide I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to be the one everyone's mad at tonight, but it, this still needs to be said. This needs to be heard. And what you were saying, Bill, <clears throat> what you were saying, Bill, about like this kind of tension within Larry of wanting to be like, but also not being afraid to being disliked, I think it was a broader tension within ACT UP as well. Like there was this, 
you know, I'm thinking of Ann Northrup's active oral history interview. She said something to the effect of like, we weren't doing this to be liked, like, right. you know, and, and we weren't liked because of, you know, how we were going about this. But, it, you know, that does very much conflict with, I think, you know, all people want to be liked to a certain extent. And I think that that tension was sort of, um, you know, definitely felt within ACT UP as a whole as well. Well, it also flies in opposition of like assimilation politics or respectability politics, this idea of no, 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 no. Don't upset them. Don't upset our oppressors. Remind them that we're just like them. We want all the same things they do. And if they can see us as their son or as part of their family, maybe they will respect us as human beings and give us all our rights. That was the thing that I found most striking in the research for my book was the extent to which, I mean, obviously everyone knows that ACT UP was reviled by like the Jesse Helmses of the world and the, you know, the Dana Myers and, you know, all those really homophobic congressmen who were proposing things like, you know, HIV quarantines. But I was really shocked also by the extent to which ACT UP was really detested by the kind of larger gay community. And I think it made joining ACT UP this kind of, it, it added it like a second step to it of like, you're not just overcoming like your own, like you've already overcome your own home, you know, internalized homophobia or whatever to, you know, come out as a gay person. And now you have to reject that community to kind of join this other group that's widely detested by, you know, the people that you're supposed to be, you know, brothers and sisters with. It's, it's, it's worth reminding people because I think it gets lost in history. I mean, even, you know, in the civil rights movement, I can tell the story because my grandmother's dead now. Um, when Martin Luther King was protesting and my dad wanted to go, my grandmother, a sensible, moderate, Democrat, black woman, told him, you stay away from that man. Everywhere he goes, there's violence. He's not helping the situation. These people who then later, you know, we put on postage stamps and we, we, we love them in their time, widely hated and hated by people in their own community because there is always in a political moment, a movement, people who try to argue, can't we just play nice? Why don't we follow all the rules and then maybe we'll get some of what we want? I mean, one of the things, uh, it's interesting what you say about uh, ACT UP, Jack, because I think that's true that, that it was born uh, not only of Larry's idea, but a lot of frustration that that you, Rashid, in your novel make clear about the, and, and you also, Jack, in, in your book, make clear was it was not the only thing happening by March 1987, although it, it uh, I don't, I hate to use this word, capitalized, but it, it sort of pulled together the threads of a lot of, of energy that was percolating at that time. And so, uh, it, it wasn't the only thing that was happening, but one of the things about ACT UP that was uh, wonderful was the way it thrived on disagreement in its meetings and then how much energy that brought, but then also how much discord that either was subterranean, latent, or came out later or... Uh, a few months later, and and so the the constructive uses of being disliked, uh, how how that works is is hard to uh, figure out. And I think Larry sometimes did understand that, and um, ACT UP did as an organ as a as a movement understand that. What I think becomes problematic, and yet is almost a natural outcome, is that people inside begin attacking one another even when they are on the same side and that weakens and and that's that's something that Larry unfortunately was prone to do i mean attacking not 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 so much other people in act up although there's some of that later but Rather than saying, okay, GMHC or human rights campaign is going to do what it's going to do, for Larry to attack the leaders of those organizations as mass murderers, I mean, or AMFAR as mass murderers, I mean, critique what they're doing, but, you know, don't make it personal. And, and so there's a lot of time spent trying to talk back, whether it's in the press or behind the scenes, to Larry to say, you know, you know, we're all on the same side. Like, don't attack Matilda Krim, Matilda Krim, about this. It's not 
productive, and that wastes a lot of energy too. So how does it become something, how does discord lead to greater progress? And that's an unknown, I think. Well, I think... I agree with what you're saying, Bill, that, you know, discord was a huge part of, you know, ACT UP and it was sort of the the gasoline, you know, that really propelled ACT UP forward. But I think that one thing that changed over the years of ACT UP sort of, you know, height between 1987 and 1992 is the kind of nature of the discord and what things were being argued over. Um, I think when ACT UP first formed in 87, there was this general sense of, okay, the government's not doing anything. They won't even say the word AIDS. So everyone could kind of get behind the idea that we need to get the government to do something or anything, really. And so I think at that point, the nature of the disagreements was more about um, tactics. Like, how do we like how are we going to accomplish this goal of getting the government to literally do anything? Um, But as ACT UP started to have successes, the nature of the AIDS crisis very much changed. And by 1992, I mean, I think there was this really deep conflict within ACT UP about who was ACT UP for. Because by 92, the situation had changed to the extent that, like, you know, who you were in the world really had a much greater impact upon, like, you know, what the AIDS crisis meant to you or how it was impacting your life. Um, You know, somebody who's just tested HIV positive and has health insurance has a very different set of needs than somebody who, um, you know, can't get an AIDS diagnosis because of, you know, red tape at the CDC and those sorts of things. And I think that ACT UP had to sort of grapple with this question of, like, who is ACT UP really for? Because at that point, by 1991, 1992, there were so many, you know, people with AIDS wasn't a kind of single constituency anymore. The needs of, you know, different people very, very much um, differed from each other and were sometimes in conflict with each other or seemed in conflict with each other. And so I think the nature of the argument very much changed later in the sort of later days of ACT UP. Well, this is something else I love because in the beginning of your ACT UP, you can't get anybody from the government on the phone. But as you continue and you have success, you are sort of becoming part of the, not establishment, but certainly part of the conversation that makes things run. I mean, the day that Fauci calls and says, the more you do your thing, it helps me with the money. You're now in collaboration with an arm of the government who who used to just ignore you. And I think that's a very different status. And I think those of us who are in a movement, you're sort of blind to that. You're blind to how the rules are changing. And suddenly there's a question of, are we being co-opted? They're running things by us. They're asking for us to sign off on them. Mm-hmm. To what extent are we still this rebel cause? And it's it's hard to hold on to that. I think probably impossible to hold on to that over time. Um, I, I want to talk uh, a bit about your character, Trey uh, Rashid. If you could tell me who Trey is and uh, how Trey uh, becomes the vehicle uh, for what you want to do, because even though you've written a novel, it's a novel with footnotes, um, some of which actually uh, call attention to the fact that you have fictionalized certain things, and you'll you'll have a footnote saying, "Well, there's no evidence that this ever happened." Uh, that that kind of thing. So, how did who is Trey? What is the story he's telling of his own life, and what about the structure in which you decided? To tell it, Trey comes to uh, New York City after graduating high school in Indianapolis. He's a young gay black guy. He's not going to college. He comes from a family with money, but he said, I don't want the trust fund. I want to see if I can make it on my own. And he comes here really rather sheltered. It's 1986, I think, right? 19, 1985. 1985. Right. He's, he's, he doesn't have any sort of political sense. I mean, his, his immediate needs are where, do I, where am I going to live? Where am I going to work? Who are my friends going to be? So I, I hope that that would make it at least a little accessible. And then we get to a, 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 a gay bathhouse later. Well, not too much later. It happens <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I thought that was chapter one. It's, like, it's two. It's like I, two. I thought I was two. reading Dancer from the Dance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that book. Um, so what I, what, I, what I like about Trey is that he's, he's, he moves on impulse. And he's just sort of responding. He does not have a larger plan, which I just want to encourage everybody to, to not let the fact that they don't have a larger plan get in their way. Um, I, you know, the book is written sort of like his memoir. 
And so just as a writerly trick, I thought it somehow gave more credibility if every once in a while I leveled with you that he couldn't remember that person's name or what weekend it was. And also to say that this happens in all of our lives. I mean, I've told stories at the family dinner table and you know, my mother would go, that wasn't you, that was your cousin, Tony. And I go, what? I wasn't the person who went down the sled and hit the tree. It just is something that sort of happens in our lives that we, we do. But what I wanted was someone who was what we'll call an unlikely hero, finding himself being heroic in a lowercase spelling of the word, you know, nothing terribly courageous, but just being there and responding to the crisis of his time. I mean, that's what I think I admire in people. So, oh, Jack. Oh, I was just going to say, Rishi, this is a part of your novel that really resonated with me was Trey's decision to join ACT UP, or you described it as an impulse, which I really like because the people that I interviewed for my book, I very much got the same sense of from them. Like joining ACT UP was not this like, decision that they kind of, you know, labored, belabored over, kind of, you know, went back and forth over. It was more of, I mean, I would say a lot of the people that I interviewed describe it more as like a compulsion or like I didn't have, like my, my, the possible choices in my life had just narrowed to the point that joining ACT UP was really the only thing that I could do. And that, what you're saying about Trey and that impulse um, and it not being a kind of conscious decision, I think very much resonates with that. Well, it also goes to what Bill's saying is like none of these people knew what the future held. So nobody joining said, I'm going to do this for the next five years. That would have been, what are you talking about? We're going to be doing this for five years. Right. We've got to keep doing this. It's a, it's a little bit the closest for anybody listening now. It's like, it's the pandemic. It's like, wait, well, okay, well, but we're going to bend the curve, right? And then we're going to be out of our house in a month. And you're like, no, no, it's going to go on for two plus years. I mean, it's just unthinkable at the start. It was interesting reading through Mark Harrington's memoir. He was, you know, a very prominent ACT UP member. And in it, he wrote, we really thought at the beginning of ACT UP that if we just worked really hard for like a year, we would just end the AIDS crisis. And like that was really what the, where their minds were at, at that point. And I think that, that, that everyone in ACT UP had to kind of do a recalibration after a little while of like, no, we're going to be slogging through this for, for a while. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about... Um... 1981, which is when uh, it's not yet called AIDS, but when the first uh, reports of of this new disease happen and Larry and some other people uh, begin to organize to raise money for research at least and also for some patient care is I, I think that Larry, who foresaw the scope of the the epidemic, the disease, uh, far more quickly than any layman did. But I think they, no one realized for quite a while, I mean, certainly a year may be uh, culminating in Larry's famous article, 1112 and Counting, which was published in the New York Native in March of 1983. I don't think people realized that that what became AIDS was yet a cause for political anger. They, they seemed, I mean, so the, I mean, I don't know that it's naivete, but the, the naivete of the act up activists who thought, oh, well, in a year we'll have succeeded. I, I don't think that even though Larry and others formed GMHC in January of 1982, that they realized that either it was going to be so hard to get attention from the government, the city, the federal government, or that so much would be needed over time. I mean, it seemed like, well, there it's a, a disease. A, a lot of people thought, oh, well, it's like other sexually transmitted diseases. They'll they'll find a cure pretty quickly or a treatment. And and so that political anger takes a while to build up, and then it takes an even longer time for it to really coalesce. Uh, into into act up and into the other things that are happening in 86 87 as as your history uh, jack shows uh, the silence equals death collective begins meeting um, in 1986 and uh, sort of then culminates in their silence equals death posters that begin to appear not long before uh, act up uh, begins and 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 there were other things happening too but that i've always been intrigued or fascinated by the fact that 
That that is almost exactly five years after the disease, and then the the beginnings of what become ACT UP, including an article that Larry writes in the New York Native, uh, which is a lambasting of GMHC at at that point in January February of 1987, is exactly five years after uh, the founding of GMHC. So that there's a certain kind of historical era that like the mind can contain and then the body just explodes. Like we've been doing this for a year. We've been living with this for five years. Like we we can't do what we've been doing in the past. And so it's so interesting in uh your novel, Rashid, that 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 he comes to New York just you know, at a certain moment, and then those things are beginning to swirl just as he sort of settled into New York. And you, Jack, in your book, even though it's about Grand Fury, show all of the things that were happening before Grand Fury uh, sort of shoots off from ACT UP in 1988. And, and, and so I think a lot of these people who don't know one another or don't know how they're organizing together or how they will organize are feeling the same kind of emotional and physical and mental exhaustion that gives rise to this new energy. And part of that is the, the amount, the sheer mounting number of deaths. I mean, people cannot think clearly anymore. Sometimes it's their own bodies that are giving out or dying. And yet this movement springs from death and needs clear thinking to to focus itself. Another paradox. No, and I and I I'm taken with the idea of how people get swept into that, you know, and how they make themselves available to it. Like what I really loved about Act Up was this idea of like, we're gonna use you wherever your talents are. If you can paint, if you can do design. We'll just we'll have a committee for that. If you can get us, you know, whatever you can get us, you can just lay your body down. We'll take it. Um, I I think it it speaks to it speaks to sort of the spirit of people that they don't they have this untapped potential. The great thing would be is getting people to sort of tap into it when we're not at a crisis point. Um, but I I wanted that journey for Trey to sort of like dabble through these movements, and some of them are big, like ACT UP. But ultimately, I think he finds himself in a role that's rather small, that's like direct service, like working at this hospice for kids, or hospice for people who are HIV positive and dying of AIDS. So I, I want to talk about the whole spectrum of advocacy. And also to what you were saying, I, I, I had the footnotes to sort of dig into the idea that there's a, there's a conversation that's been going before my character gets to New York. That part of what swept him up is something that's been just churning and churning and going around and he sort of drops into the middle of it and then is swept away by it. I mean, you're also doing something, I think, to rectify, uh, although I know that is a very specific word, so I don't, I don't know that this was uh, necessarily your impulse, but it's one of the things your book achieves, uh, both in the footnotes and in the narrative itself, is to uh, correct the idea that AIDS, at least initially or early on, only af- affected gay white men of a certain yeah. class. And uh, I'm very, I was very aware uh, almost immediately there's a footnote about Sylvester. That's yes, the first one. Um, the first one who is uh, complaining. Uh, I mean, that that's not the right word. I mean, is pointing out uh, with justification uh, that when he dies in 1988, shortly before he dies, he's he's angry that in 1988, it's it's not yet understood uh, that it's not only a disease of, of white gay men. And uh, so when you see that he was saying that in 1988, and here we are in 2022, and there are narratives uh, like how to survive a plague that uh, don't exclude other people, but do put white gay men at the forefront of the movement in a way that uh, is true to their stories, but not necessarily true to the story of AIDS itself. Yeah, and I, I mean, and there's a, there are a lot of reasons for that. The two that sort of strike me is one, I think it was being done because the powers that be tend to be 
white. And so you're trying to appeal to them that this could be a member of your family. This could be someone you love. So you're bringing examples that match who they are. They're white people and you show them young white men dying and you hope they see their son somewhere across the table. And that is less likely to happen with someone of color. I also think that uh, with people of color, particularly black people, it's the community I come from and it's the community I know, especially in the mid 80s, there were less people suffering from that disease willing to admit they were dying from that disease. I mean, I've, I mean, anytime we try to count anything, I always wonder what the dark side of the moon is. So, you know, how many people died of AIDS before the New York Times writes that story in 1981? How many people died of AIDS, but their families would never admit it? They would never admit it. I mean, in my own family, in my own community, there are people who, looking back, I'm like, I think he died of AIDS. But no one ever said that. And that's not the official record that was ever given. So there was this moment to sort of promote white stories because you're trying to get a largely white power structure to recognize your needs. And also there was a double shame, I think, in the black community that kept people from sort of standing up and saying, I'm being affected by this disease. And not just, I mean, not just the people who were necessarily dying of AIDS, but even their families couldn't stand up and say, let me tell you what happened to my son. Let me tell you what happened to my brother. So those two things, I think, have led to this moment where there, there just hasn't been a lot of stories like this. And it's probably also why when, when I deal with Trey, I wanted to tell the story of somebody who was not just gay, but effeminate. And everyone knew it from the start, that there's not going to be some big coming out scene when he's in high school. We've known it since he could walk. Because, again, I'm interested in someone who finds he has to stand up because there's no hiding. Like we all see you, we all know who and what you are. So he just has to learn how to embrace it and live with it. This question of like <clears throat> how to appeal to people in power was something that like Grand Fury like constantly dealt with as well. And I think the project that what this what this really reminds me of is there is Grand Fury's women don't get AIDS, they just die from it poster. Mm. There was this huge argument within Grand Fury once they had settled upon this slogan, women don't get AIDS, they just die from it, of who they were going, of how they were, of what image was going to go along with it and who they were going to represent. Um, and, you know, there was a wing of the collective that very much felt like, you know, we need an image that's going to appeal to those in power, that's going to arrest their attention and convince them of doing something. And so they wanted to use an image of three white beauty queens because they thought that this was like, these are the kinds of women that those in, that those in power really prize. Um, and, you know, there was another wing of the collective that felt like, you know, this is really not representative of, you know, where, where the AIDS crisis is and, you know, who's being affected by it. And I think it's, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, there's, it's like a kind of never ending it, it, for Grand Fury, at least, it, you know, it was hugely divisive. Oh, and I mean, when you when you introduce the idea of race, right? Like, so we are going to put a let's say we put a black woman on this. Are we denigrating black women? Are we saying something? Are we are they are they going to feel attacked or called out? I mean, it's incredibly complicated. The thing that I where I get frustrated is when I think like I want to have that argument. Like, let's have that debate as opposed to no, we're just going to go with the white image. We're just going to try to appease that. I'm also sort of what I'm what I hope comes through in the book is that I actually think all these things are valid. Like I'm like, well, let's use them all. You go talk. You go to the city council meeting. I'll be outside protesting and you stay back with the sick people and and feed them dinner. Like all those things actually have to happen. And it's it sort of drives me nuts that, you know, there can there's so much battle between all those fronts of what are we supposed to be doing as you said we spend a lot of time fighting each our, our, on our own side i mean one of the things that um i interviewed a woman named Ginny apuzo who uh was uh the head of the national gay and lesbian task force i mean she had many roles including in the city and state and worked for the cuomo administration and she was uh um so I forget exactly which title she had at which moment, but she was a longtime leader of the, of, you know, the more quote mainstream gay and lesbian organizations in the eighties. And, um, she's one of the leaders who Larry most admired. If you always, if you were to ask him who he was, uh, who he thought of as, 
great leaders, uh, he would say, and Northrop, who Jack, you mentioned as one of the facilitators, longtime facilitators at uh, ACT UP and also the host of a TV show called Gay USA with Andy Hum. But uh, so she, he would mention Anne Northrop, Irvashi Vad, who died earlier this year, and Ginny Apuzo. And Ginny said the thing about Larry's tactics was that Larry wouldn't like this, but that she could always use what he threw. And uh, I came across a quote, I think it was in just, just recently, uh, I don't think it was in your book, uh, Jack, but I, I I saw this person, Martin Delaney, who was the head of an organization called Project Inform in San Francisco, uh, which uh, was uh, similar to ACT UP, not in its tactics, but in its AIDS advocacy. Uh, and he was quoted in, I think, a 1989 advocate article that was among Larry's papers as saying something like, well, you can either deal with us or you can have Larry Kramer break into your office and pee on your desk. <laughs> not that that is known to be a tactic that I ever heard Larry actually say. It's not, not far off, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was that sense that Larry's anger, his intemperate, often counterproductive uh, um, screaming um, could be productive for other people to use in just the way that you're oh. saying about the division of labor, either in the movement or uh, as histories of ACT UP and as your book, Jack, makes clear, also a division of intention and interest that ACT UP fostered so that different affinity groups could be doing different things all in the name of ACT UP without uh, short-circuiting uh, other people's goals in ACT UP. Well, and I think, I mean, you see that across other movements, is which I'm fascinated by. It's like, I mean, that is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X about something that's more militant versus, you know, nonviolent demonstrations. You know, people, I think, found themselves moving towards MLK because the alternative scared the shit out of them. Um, I, I also am sort of in love with the idea that there could be better communication between those parties, but I think it's, it's so, it, it seems to be almost impossible. I guess people are so fixated that their way is the way that it's hard for them to, they're like, what's that other person doing out there? But I'm like, you're in, you're in conversation. Um, I work in television uh, in, out in Hollywood and it, it's not known for teaching people a lot of things that make them better, but this is what one of the things that taught me is that people come with a certain talent that's irrepressible and you use it to the best that you can. I don't, I don't find myself asking people to be different. I go, well, that's, that's, that's Jim or that's Betty and that's what they bring and we're just going to use it as much as we can and the rest we will forgive. I think what you're saying, Rashid, also reminds me of there was this constant feeling within ACT UP that like there weren't enough people there. And this was something that, you know, Bill, I'm sure, you know, you've come across in Larry's papers and, you know, interviews with Larry, but, you know, Larry would always say, you know, you know, say 10% of the, you know, the country is gay. It's 30 million people. ACT UP has what, like 5,000 members nationwide, maybe at it, like at its absolute height. Um, I think that a lot of that conflict of, you know, people who are more or less working for the same side, but, you know, maybe have, you know, different tactics is about, is this frustration over not feeling like your method is getting enough, um, enough people behind it. And that, and so it becomes easy to attack other people who are going about it in a different way, because it's like, well, you could be over here with us, you know, doing, doing things our way, but, you know, I think when everybody has this kind of, it was, I mean, ACTIV was constantly short-staffed. Well, one of the things that Larry said till the end of his life was that he didn't understand why more people didn't fight for their yes. own lives. And one of the ways that I want to bring the conversation to the, the present moment is, is in two ways. I want to talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic because Larry said that uh, 
well, he said it many times, but he said it again in 2020, uh, really talking about uh, his novel, The American People, which uh, was partly a history of ACT UP and also of AIDS. Uh, he, he said it sort of before the COVID pandemic, but it was a question that I think also he brought into the COVID pandemic. He died in May of uh, 2020, um, although not of COVID. And so the question I am, I'm asking is, on the one hand, why more people didn't fight for their own lives, if if you agree with Larry's uh, uh, interpretation of, of the movement? And how did writing your books um, work in the pandemic? I don't mean logistically, but I mean, how did the COVID pandemic frame your writing and especially your finishing of these books? I don't know, Rashid, when you began, but Jack, your uh, project began before COVID because you were working on it as um, a master's uh, thesis. Mm -hmm. So talk about how thinking about and writing about AIDS was framed, changed, transformed, enlightened, made more depressing by writing during the COVID pandemic? This may sound strange. Um, I started my book uh, maybe six months before the pandemic began, and then the pandemic happened, and my, I have two small kids and my husband. We all suddenly were at home and trying to figure out. We were, we were leaving our mail in the front yard so it could bake in the sun. We are wiping <laughs> down everything that came in. I mean, we were really scared. Our children are adopted, um, they, we don't know their, their medical history in the sense of were they going to be susceptible to this and was it going to be bad? Um, and so we were in sort of lockdown mode and then I began to write again. And as heavy as the book may seem, it oftentimes was a preferable place for me to go than the present moment during the pandemic. Because already I think we look back and it's easy to sort of be like, oh, well, we got through that, neglecting the point that millions of people did not get through that. And that at the time, we weren't sure if we would get through that. I spent a lot of those first months, maybe even the first year or so until they had a vaccine, really afraid that this was going to kill someone I knew and love, if not me. So getting into a book where I can control what the characters do was a wonderful release. And it also comes to the thing of history, which is nice when you're on the other side of it, is I know where this is going. I know that I know how this story ends as opposed to the to the life I was living at the time. So I actually found the book um, to be a comforting place to retreat to. I would say that the that COVID sort of shaped the book that I wrote in in two different ways. And one really had to do with the interviews that I was doing with other ACT UP members. Um, I noticed, or not other ACT UP, the interviews that I was doing with ACT UP members. I, I noticed very early on, you know, in the, you know, when we were kind of in the lockdown stage of the COVID pandemic, that the emotional intensity of the interviews that I was doing with people was way, way higher than it had been even just a couple of months before. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought a lot about this, of like, why is it that Every person that I'm interviewing now just like breaks down crying. And this was not something that was happening routinely, um, you know, before lockdown happened. And I think that one of the big things is that ACT UP was a place where you could go and feel like you were. And, and ACT UP was a place where you could go and fight the AIDS crisis in a group of people. You could be it was a very social setting. Um and COVID, because of the way in which it's spread, um, does not, or at least at that moment, certainly, did not lend itself to that kind of um, activism that is dependent upon people being together in the same room and socializing and really being around each other. And so I think it was really painful for a lot of the people that I interviewed to have to, re, you know, go back and revisit this, these memories of community activism and collective activism um, in this moment where we were all so, so isolated from each other. Um, I think the other thing that, you know, shaped, you know, the other facet of COVID that kind of, you know, shaped my book has, you know, more to do with 
with me personally, but, and this isn't something that really went into the book. It's more about, you know, my thinking about ACT UP and Grand Fury, but I, um, like the day after I submitted the final draft of my book, I, I got COVID and then developed long COVID afterwards. Oh. And I was, you know, I was pretty much bedridden for about two months. And then, you know, a couple months afterwards, you know, I've spent recuperating, you know, I did enroll in like an outpatient rehab program um, at Mount Sinai. Like, you know, I'm, I've made like a full recovery, which I'm really thankful for, but it was like, you know, it was my first time, I'm 28 years old. It was my first time being like sick and like really sick in a kind of prolonged way. And I, you know, obviously, you know, having COVID is a very different illness than, you know, having AIDS, but I understood the anger that people in ACT UP felt differently after having gone through that. And I think it has to do, I think a lot of it has to do with the experience of being, of being young and being in your twenties and having this expectation that you're going to have a certain kind of life. And then this, you know, pandemic or this virus comes along and it very much shapes, you know, the, the course of your life or it shapes, um, you know, your outcomes. And so I think that that was something that I really realized after dealing with long COVID was the extent to which, I mean, ACTIP was a very, very young group of people. And it was, you know, most of the people in that room were in their 20s or 30s. And I sort of, in an abstract way, understood the way in which that kind of propelled ACTIP's sense of anger. But it wasn't until I was sort of experiencing something um, somewhat analogous myself that I really kind of, you know, understood it in a less abstract way. Well, what I love is what you hit on is like that feeling of you've been robbed. Yeah. That if you're young and you're going to get this and I'm going to die... I mean, you're furious because you've just been robbed of a life. And one of the reasons I thought, like, during COVID, the response was, you know, some people took it seriously. A lot of people were like, whatever, is because I think initially they were like, well, it's just killing old people. And it, I think at one point they were like, your grandpa is happy to die for capitalism. I'm like, really? Is that? Okay. So, that, you know, if it had been happening to people more readily who were young, not that it didn't, but if it had been more readily, that would have been something very different, Right. Um, that feeling of a life cut short, that, that will motivate people. That'll get them going. One of the things that uh, someone said to me about Larry and the beginnings of ACT UP, which I, I don't think I've seen elsewhere just as one of the factors, because this was a person who was, was adamant, uh, probably the most adamant that Larry almost was incidental. I mean, still a great deal of historical, uh, I mean, resentment from his own interactions with Larry. Um, and he pointed out that all, all of the main people who became associated with ACT UP, whether it's Maxine Wolf or Peter Staley, Mark Harrington, uh, didn't, weren't at Larry's March 1987 speech at the center, uh, and and they came to act up for other reasons or at other moments. I mean, early on, but he pointed out that one of the things that had been happening was that testing was becoming more common and more acceptable. It had been around for a while, but um, it it was not something that a lot of people did out of fear that they would lose their insurance for various reasons. People were not getting tested. There was also no treatments, uh, basically. Uh, And so he said that he thought what ACT UP uh, was built on in addition to some other things was that now there were a lot of young people, young men in particular, who knew that they might get sick or would get sick, that until then, the only people who were sick were people who were already becoming debilitated and that you now had people who were, as as Larry liked to say, you know, fighting for their own lives, but knew that they had a limited period, and so or didn't know how limited it might be, and so that was an energy that was new in 1987, 1986, 1987. And I thought that was a very interesting thing that that was explaining something of even if it wasn't a mass movement, as Larry wished, with 30 million gay people, uh, that even the thousands who did become involved were aware of their own mortality in a way that it was too late for a lot of the earliest people who caught AIDS to do anything to fight for their own lives, really. Well, and it, 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 it really can 
change the trajectory, right? Like if you know you've got maybe two, three years to live, you start making other plans about how you're going to spend your time and what you're going to do with that time left. You know, you can you can quit the job at the bank and go all in on this. Um, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense um, because I think you're right. Because be, at that point, it's like if anybody started getting sick, the countdown clock, you can hear it ticking. And so it's like, well, let's just make you comfortable. Whereas it's like, well, I feel fine, but I know I have this. What am I going to do with the two, three, four years? Along with the frustration of having seen other people die and then also the frustration of knowing that the government hasn't, hasn't done anything. Uh, and also, I mean, this is this also the thing that hits me. Is also, you know, if we work really hard, guys, maybe they can find an answer for me. You know, I know I just tested positive, but I'm really healthy now. Right. So if we could get to work on this, maybe we could save me. And some of the people then who feared that they would be dead are still alive uh, 35 years later. I mean, whether it's because of the drugs uh, that were, were brought about or their health has stayed stable in ways that seemed impossible then. Um, well, what you guys were saying about this sort of, oh, I have two to three years left, you know, I better sort of make the most of it. I've talked and I've heard a lot of ACT UP members say it, that they still have a hard time letting go of that mentality, that it still feels to them like, oh, I, you know, I just have a couple of years left. And now they're sort of having to recalibrate of like, well, no, I'm actually, you know, yes, I, I am HIV positive, but, you know, because of these medications, I'm going to lead you know, I'll probably live to be 70 or 80 years old. And that is a, that recalibration, I think, has been a really, really difficult thing for a lot of people in ACT UP to make. To realize that you will die with HIV rather than from HIV. Right. And I think that was something that happened in COVID. I mean, you're like, oh, I I, I lived to the AIDS epidemic. Now I'm going to die of COVID. <laughs> you know, like what, <laughs> what kind of, you know, what kind of, Full <laughs> game is this. Is this. Um, but I, I wanted to ask uh, before we run out of time that uh, to talk about uh, whether uh, monkeypox has sharpened um, your takes on your own books, which are published and out there, I mean, because there is obviously a disease. I wasn't going to say a new disease because it's not a new disease, but uh, the question of whether it's a sec it's not a sexually transmitted disease but it is driven among gay men and their uh, queer networks and their sexual partners uh so there is a sexual component to at least how it's been portrayed and how it is uh going in the in in the LGBT community and so is there any wisdom from <laughs> I, act I, up <laughs> to say about how monkeypox uh, activism should proceed? Because there have already been massive divisions um, with many of the same questions raised about community responsibility, the government intransigence, government blindness, uh, Larry Kramer invoked and also reviled. Uh, so uh, have you thought about this? It's just like, I'm glad my books are done, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I don't want to revise. Um, I I could be wrong about this. I... I know that, you know, I, I kind of think that certain human uh, frailties and problems are unavoidable, that we are always going to sort of squabble and bicker. I've actually been largely encouraged that I thought the media, I thought people have tried to be very careful about not stigmatizing people who have monkeypox. I love, I mean, one of the good parts of social media is people saying, hey, they're giving out shots at this clinic and you can walk down here and get something and people taking pictures of themselves. I mean, the way we sort of did with voting was like, I got my, I, I voted. People are showing their bandaged arm and saying, I, I got it. So I think it's, I hope that's better. I hope that's a lesson we learned from that movement, this idea of like, let's not stigmatize people. Let's not be ashamed of this. Let's go get the, let's go get our medicine and let's try to, you know, tamp this down. I think another lesson to that's really important to learn about ACT UP, and I think this applies to monkeypox or to, you know, any number of, you know, sort of issues that people are trying to rally against is, and it very much goes back to what we were saying earlier of Larry's frustration with, you know, how few people really joined ACT UP in this fight. Um, you know, ACT UP never had, ACT UP was never a very large organization. It was a relatively small group of people and ACT UP's demonstrations were, I mean, ACT UP's demonstra largest demonstration had 5,000 people attend it. 
I mean, that's tiny in comparison to other major demonstrations in U.S. history. And I just think there's something to be said for the kind of direct action tactics that ACTIP used, where it wasn't about let's get the largest number of people to, you know, fully square or, you know, downtown or wherever it is. It was about I'm going to confront this person face to face. I'm going to, which is a very different. And and I, I was thinking about this earlier today of like the difference of what that does to somebody when you confront them face to face, as opposed to having a kind of anonymous mob outside. And, you know, I think it kind of asserts your personhood and it says, you know, like you have to, I don't know. It's, I think there's something about human psychology that's really easy to kind of dismiss like a crowd of people. But when you have that person who's kind of getting, who's getting up in your face and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be alive in two to three years if you keep doing your job the way that you've been doing it. Um, I think that was a huge, that had a huge impact. Um, and it was really how ACT UP, you know, was able to create change. And I think that that, that template of, a face-to-face confrontation as uncomfortable as it can feel at times or as uncomfortable as, you know, even the thought or prospect of, you know, the anxiety around it can can feel is what, you know, at least for ACT UP, you know, that's what made change. Well, thank you both, Jack Lowry and Rashid Newsom. Thank you very much for this look into unknown history for the Macmillan podcast. Thank you. I'm Bill Goldstein. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bill.